Welcome. We're here at the Summer Smorgasbord, as Chris Meyer so aptly put it. Now, I've been to a smorgasbord before, and I got to choose what I was going to eat. <laughs> and if you ever brought your kids to a smorgasbord, where did they go first? Dessert. To the dessert, right. So while it may be called a smorgasbord, really, it's not. But we'll keep up with that fantasy, okay? So, in this time of a smorgasbord, we've spent some time with Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. We've spent some time with Abraham and Sarah, and an impossible dream come true. So as I contemplated what these next two Sundays would be for me, I started to think about the times in scripture when a barren woman was promised a child. And there are six of them. So the first one we've already discovered, that's Sarah. And you remember, she was 90 years old when she finally had that baby. And the whole point of that was the impossibleness of that promise coming true, and yet it came true. The second time was the wife of that child, Isaac, his wife, Rebecca. The scripture says that she was also barren. Uh, some commentators think that that was almost for 40 years. At any rate, the passage says that Isaac prayed for her and she had twins. Both of them fighting in her womb and they were Esau and Jacob. The third time in scripture that a barren woman is given a child is the wife of Jacob. Her name was Rachel. Actually, in the passage is in Genesis 29. It says, now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, if you've read this passage at all, you know that this really didn't turn out very well. It started a bidding war. Leah is the first to have children. And when Rachel discovers that she can't have children, then she gives her handmaid to her husband to have children for her through, her, through for that family through her. And when Leah sees that that's been done, then she says, oh, well, you can play that game. And she gives her handmaid to her husband so that she can have children through that woman. And then finally, Rachel is found to be pregnant and she has Joseph. So in that family, there were 12 sons with four different moms, one dad, and a daughter that we know of. Sounds kind of like a modern made-for-TV movie, doesn't it? The remaining three women who were barren for a long time before they were able to conceive are Samson's mother, and that's who we're going to look at today, Samuel's mother, Hannah, and we'll visit her next week, and the last one is Elizabeth in the New Testament she was barren and an angel visited her husband to announce that she would have a child. 
and uh, perhaps we'll have a chance to look at that in the future. You'll also remember, if you're a student of the scripture, that David's wife, Michal, was stricken with barrenness that was never relieved, and that was as a punishment for her behavior when David danced before the Lord when the ark was brought back to Jerusalem. Okay, so these biblically famous men were born of women who were initially described as barren, and that's Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, Joseph, Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. Now three of the people on that list had a special visit from the angel of the Lord or perhaps another angelic visitor. Those three were Sarah, the mother of Samson, and Elizabeth. So let's turn to Judges chapter 13 where we find the story of Samson's birth. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, 
let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manahadan, between Zorah and Eshtaol. Now the Philistines come into a lot of our stories in the Old Testament, don't they? So where did they come from? They are more likely to be sea peoples who were displaced during a time of war and they came to settle along the Mediterranean coast of what is modern day Israel. They were the first peoples in the area to have iron weapons and chariots. And this made them a formidable enemy. And the people like the Israelites, who were mainly farmers and shepherds, had no weapons that could compete with the Philistines. And so when the Philistines attacked, the Israelites fell before them. The Philistines also adopted the local gods as their own, and the chief among them was a god named Dagon. He was the father of Baal. You've heard of Baal or Baal, as he's commonly said in English. Baal comes into a lot of stories as well. And so Dagon is the father of Baal, and that's who the Philistines had as their chief god. Now, eventually, the Philistines were defeated and decimated by the Babylonians, whose standard policy, once they had defeated a nation, was to haul all of the people off, resettle them somewhere else, and teach them Babylonian customs. Thus, the Philistines, at that point in time, they fade from history. They are absorbed completely by the Babylonian Empire. So here we are at Judges chapter 13. If you know anything about Judges, almost every uh, subsection that begins says that the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it's actually a sad story of the declension of the people of Israel deeper and deeper into sin. So here we are at chapter 13, and it says that 
the uh, people of Israel had once again done evil in the sight of the Lord, and he had allowed them to be in the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. We are a nation of people who in the main have absolutely no idea what it's like to be under subjugation to another nation. We haven't been oppressed that way for one minute, let alone for 40 years. Now maybe we can relate to it from our, from our history lessons. We learn that if you're going to be subjugated, then the oppressor is going to make every opportunity happen to put you in your place. Now 40 years ago was 1977. And I know that because I was married that year. And I even remember the date. It was March 5th, 1977. And I was married in this church over in what we now call the chapel. That was where the ceremony occurred. So every time I go into the chapel, I just have this moment of, oh yeah. (laughs) Now the point is, is that the direct result of the people doing evil in the sight of the Lord is their oppression and occupation by the Philistines. The sad truth is that this happens again and again and again and again in the history of Israel. Now we're informed in verse two that there's a man named Manoah. He's from the tribe of Dan. And they're living in a place called Zorah, which if you have a a map in your Bible, you'll see it's very, very close to the five cities that were the principal cities of the Philistines. The tribe of Dan has a a very sorry history. They have a bad reputation. They were known as a tribe that committed sin after sin. They did not even conquer the portion of the land that had been allotted to them when the, when the uh, nation of Israel came out of Egypt. Uh, they were in the very northernmost part of Israel and they had done almost nothing to conquer that area. In fact, they started to join the other side. And so they were considered one of the least of the tribes of Israel. Now the passage says this very interesting statement. It says, his wife was barren and had no children. Isn't that the definition of barren? So why would the passage say she was barren and had no children? It is a typical Hebrew way of emphasizing the strength of the feelings that are happening about the barrenness. So the statement is, she was barren and had no children, strengthens it and makes it so that it's it's something that she felt very strongly. Now the other thing that I think is interesting in this passage is that we are not even told her name. She is such a nobody that scripture doesn't record her name. She's referred to as Manoah's wife throughout. So why do I bring that up? Because the angel appeared to her. The state of women in that society was pretty low. Their whole identity was tied up in their husband and producing children for that husband. 
This woman has a husband, but she has not produced any children. She's not given a name. She's truly a nobody. And yet, when the angel comes to announce the birth of Samson, he comes to her. Now, the other interesting thing as I read this passage is that the angel, what do angels always say when they encounter humans? Fear not, right? Because usually the human reaction is fear. In this passage, the angel does not have to say fear not because the woman does not just demonstrate that she is afraid. And when she's telling her husband about the encounter, she says, uh, a man of God came to me. So she probably didn't even really recognize that he was an angel, although I think towards the end she must have because she used some language that we would use today. He was very awesome. <laughs> so the angel gives her some very explicit directions. No wine or strong drink, don't eat any unclean thing, and when the child is born, no razor comes on his head. And the angel says, he shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. So, what is a Nazarite? And if you'll turn in the Bible to Numbers chapter 6, we will find out what a Nazarite is. I won't read the entire chapter. I'll just characterize what a Nazarite is. Numbers 6, starting in verse 1. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, he shall, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair, of hair on his head grow long. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or his mother or his brother or for his sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is to be holy to the Lord. So when a person takes a vow as a Nazarite, it's usually for a specific reason and for a specific period of time. Uh, the reading that I did on it said that the, uh, the shortest period of time was 30 days, and then there was no uh, end as far as how long you wanted to uh, set yourself aside. Both men and women could set themselves aside in this way and become a Nazarite, although in the Old Testament, a man could tell his wife that she could not take a Nazarite vow if he chose to do so. So the Nazarite vow is 
something that a person takes on for a specific purpose or reason and then has an end. And then if you read on in Numbers chapter six, you would see that there was a very specific way that your Nazarite vow was to end. Part of it involved bringing certain sacrifices, but the interesting part was that in the temple, you had to shave off all your hair and then burn it in the fire there. Anybody ever burned hair? Yeah, not pleasant. So the odd thing that's happening here is that Samson's mother is told that she is to be a Nazarite and that her son would be a Nazarite from the womb for life. So he doesn't get a choice. He doesn't get a chance to say, I think I'll do this. He is a Nazarite from birth for life, and it's said in the passage, until the day of his death. Now, how about you? Do you think that would be a burden? Can't do this, can't do that. You remember when you were a teenager? What is it what you wanted to do the most? The stuff that you were told you can't do, right? And this may have been a part of Samson's life because you can imagine that his mother would tell him this miraculous story of his birth and she would reiterate to him again that he was to refrain from anything to do with grapes, no wine, no strong drink, no uh, touching any dead person, and no cutting his hair. Now, the no cutting his hair part, when I was growing up, I could do that. <laughs> and if, uh, if I had, uh, had the opportunity to dig into the past, I probably could have put a picture on the wall of me with hair past my shoulders. Because, you know, that was kind of a cool thing to do when I was growing up. So, this visit happens, and Manoah's wife comes to her husband and explains, hey, I just had this incredible visit, and here's what the angel told me to do. Now, we would have expected that the angel would have come to her husband, but he came to the woman. So, Manoah, maybe a little piqued, Ask God, send that angel again and let him explain to us what he's supposed to do when he grows up. And the surprising thing is that the angel once again appears to the woman and does not come to Manoah. Now certainly that's intentional on God's part. So what the woman does is she, she runs back to her husband and says, he's here. And together they run back to the angel and they find him there and he asks, are you the one who spoke to this woman? And the angel replies, I am. And the angel then reiterates the Nazarite vow. And so in typical Eastern Mediterranean hospitality, Manoah says, well, let us prepare a meal for you. And the angel says, well, I won't eat your food. But if you want to make a sacrifice to the Lord, then make it to the Lord. Now the text tells us that Manoah did not know he was an angel of the Lord. I find that kind of hard to believe, don't you? And yet, the text tells us that that's what's going on. So Manoah 
thinking it's a man of God, and there were a number of people throughout the history of Israel who were considered a man of God. They represented the Lord, but they weren't angels. So in this case, for some reason, he doesn't get it. Even though his wife said, he's very awesome. Then there's that interesting interaction where he says, what is your name? And the angel says, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Now some texts say incomprehensible. The whole idea of knowing the name, as Manoah said, was so that we can honor you when what you said comes true. But the angel refuses to give him the name. You remember a famous wrestling match in the Old Testament? where the angel wrestled with Jacob, and Jacob wanted to know his name and refused to let him go. It's something along those lines. So Manoah takes the young goat, he prepares it, takes the grain offering, puts it on the rock, and then it says in the passage that the angel performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. And the wonder was this. He caused the sacrifice to burn and then in the flames of the sacrifice ascended up into heaven. And that was the point in time that Manoah realized that this was no average man of God. I gotta give credit to Manoah, he's pretty sharp. (laughs) By saying that, I actually mean the opposite, okay? So what's his reaction? He starts wailing. He throws himself on the ground and starts wailing. We're going to die. We're going to die. We've seen God. Now, that's an honest feeling. I get that. But who is it that says, um, Manoah? It's his wife. She's the one with the sense in the family, apparently, because she says, look, if God had wanted to kill us, why would he have told us all these wonderful things and accepted our sacrifice? And then Manoah goes, oh yeah. I'm paraphrasing scripture a little bit there. (laughs) So these stories end up in scripture because somebody told them. And I'm wondering, who told this story? There was the angel, Manoah, and his wife. Somehow this story got circulated and I think perhaps it was his wife. Well, let's spend just a few more minutes on the story and then I'll make some observations and then we'll be done. Uh, Purposely today, I am not going to look at the life of Samson. You could read about that in chapters 14, 15, and 16 of Judges. But I'll tell you right now, it's a sorry story. Now, you probably heard about Samson in Sunday school. You probably read about Samson in Bible story books. But the truth is that for such a strong person physically, he made up for it in weaknesses in almost every other part of his life. The passage says in summary that he judged Israel for 20 years but he appears to have never led an army into battle. He never spoke stirring words in praise of God. The only thing that he seems laudable for is that at the very end of his life, he prays and asks God to give him the strength 
to destroy the temple of Dagon, to kill as many Philistines as possible, and the reason for this prayer is in vengeance for the loss of his two eyes that were gouged out. It kind of leads us to ask, where did he get his strength? Absolutely nowhere in scripture does it say that a person taking a Nazarite vow who doesn't cut their hair suddenly becomes super strong. Now it does say, each time that he's about to do some incredible feat, it says, the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. So when the the lion rushes at him, it says the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily and he tore it apart as you would tear apart a roast goat. The only part of the Nazarite vow that Samson appears to have observed was that he didn't cut his hair because certainly he drank wine and he was certainly in contact with lots of dead bodies because the passage tells us that he killed over 4,000 people in his life. So yes, it's a sad story. So here are some observations that I want to make before we're done. The first one is, why did Samson's birth require such an incredible beginning? Couldn't Samson have just been an average Joe, born to an average mom and dad, who then took a Nazarite vow and done these things? There's something about Samson that we're not getting. You see, Samson is listed for us in scripture somewhere else. Do you know where it is? It's in Hebrews 11, the chapter that we know as the vibrant chapter on faith. Verse 32 of Hebrews 11 says, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the powers of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Now I don't know about you, but I'm a little gobsmacked because Samson doesn't fit any of those descriptions. And yet, there he is. How can this be? You see, even though we are saved by grace as a gift of God, I think we still like to hold on to works as a way of assuring ourselves that God loves us. Samson's not in the hall of faith for stuff that he did. We tend to hold on to the things that we do to say, I'm doing well. So when someone says, hey, how was your week? The first thing we do is we look back on the week and we go, okay, well, I did this and I did that, and those are good things. I'm not gonna think too much about that. Hey, it was a good week. 
Or perhaps if your week was characterized by failure and the list of bad things is higher than the list of good things, then what do you say? Oh, it was fine. Right? If someone asks you that question, if you had a terrible week, you're not going to say, well, I failed uh, at, at this juncture and I, I made this mistake. You, we just don't do that. Because it's part and parcel of who we are as people. All our lives, we've been graded, reviewed, and evaluated. It starts at school. It continues at work. It even happens here at church. If you participate in serving anywhere in the church, rest assured your performance is being evaluated. Now that's not meant to be creepy, it's just the truth. And sometimes those evaluations are good, and sometimes they're not. You see, we learn to perform at an early age, and we learn to hide at an early age. How can you teach a Sunday school class in the middle of grappling with some sin? You can't just call up and say, you know what, this week was a bad week, I'm not gonna be there. You still end up teaching. How can you serve in the nursery or with Cedar Home Kids when your week was nothing but failure and disappointment? You carry on. It's our goal to always and often remind you that it's not about your works. It's not about your successes and your failures. It's not about you deserving anything. It's all about our standing in Christ as a child of God. Earlier in Hebrews it says, for by one offering he has perfected, get that word, perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws on their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. God chooses not to remember our sins but sees us as a child of God saved by grace through faith in his son Jesus. And that's how we get in that hall of faith. It's not by our actions, it's not by our words, it's not by our deeds, it's by faith. May we never, as a church, lay a burden on you to try and earn your way into acceptance by works. May we never cease to remind you and each other again and again that we're a new creature and our lives are hidden away in Christ. Samson may have been a strong weakling, but you know what? God still loved him and God loves us. The second observation is that God uses nobodies. We don't even know the name of Samson's mother, although in my reading I found a place where the uh, Jewish authorities came up with a name for her. 
I don't know if you want me to tell you it. You, can't, you probably won't remember it, but Manoah's wife probably will do just fine. And she may have been a nobody in her society, but in God's sight, she was someone through whom his work could be done. And that is one of the miracles of the church. God has chosen to have the gospel proclaimed in the world through us, through people, people who fail him, people who are afraid, people who sometimes can't put two thoughts together in that stressful moment when somebody says, well, what is it about Christ that I should care? It says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 and the following verses, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. God chooses to put his message in our mouths, in our halting speech, to demonstrate that the power is from him and not from us. So Paul says it this way, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults and distress, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. I imagine that there are times that you feel weak as a Christian, and that's natural. Maybe you're not even as powerful as Samson was to resist sin. But you know what? God is still at work in you. He still has placed you into the body of Christ to be his hands, his voice, his feet, his words, his touch, his love for a lost world. And he empowers us through the Holy Spirit to do that. And that's an awesome thing. The last thing. I think Samson began to trust in his strength as evidenced by his long hair and neglected to trust in God. So I want to speak to you directly, teens, and to your parents. There are many voices calling to you Many voices that are trying to get your attention, trying to uh, say this is the way, this is what's right. I know what you've been taught, but this is the real one. Teens, your parents know what that's like because they went through it. So parents, I ask you to speak truth into the life of your teens. Don't just assume that they know the truth because they've been in Sunday school. Don't just assume that they will understand it all because they come from a church background. The one time that I was able to go to camp two years younger than, than me, in other words, I was gonna be a senior in high school and they allowed me to go to Niners camp. We were gonna be out of town the week that my camp normally would have been. This was at Trout Lake in Minnesota. And I, it must have been a God thing. But I went to camp, ninth grade camp, as a junior. 
And for the first time in my life, I was the biggest in camp. I had always been kind of a small kid, so when I was with my own age, I was the shrimp. Now two years younger, I wasn't the shrimp anymore. Girls were interested in me. And you know what happened? I completely and totally blew off all the Bible studies, all the chapels. I was so interested in having fun with these new friends. So on Friday night, we all left on Saturday morning. On Friday night, they had a communion service before the preacher spoke. And I was sitting down in front here with all my friends. And they passed around the grape juice in these little souffle cups. You've seen those before, tiny little things. You know, they had to do something to save money, so it was paper cups. And I was sitting in the, in the row, and somebody jostled me, and I dropped my cup on the floor, and I swore out loud in the chapel. Here's a good, young, Christian kid, grew up in the church. The story had always been that when the doors opened, there was a vacuum created and we got sucked in because we were always at churches. I remember growing up. I was president of the youth group. I mean, I was just active and doing all this stuff. And the first chance I got to be somebody that I thought I wanted to be, I blew God off like he was not even there. And when I swore out loud in the church, it hit me. And that's a moment that I look back on and I say, you know what? That's when God really got a hold of my life. Because I remember after that service, I went up and talked to the pastor up there and I said, you know what? I'm done goofing around. I'm done with this. If God can't do in my life what he's promised to do, I want nothing to do with him. If he's who he really says he is, then from this moment on, I want to know that he's got control of my life. And you know what that pastor said? He said, don't tell me. Tell him. Now, I'm not saying that my life has been perfect and wonderful from that point on. All I'm trying to tell you is that if you assume that your teens know it all and you're assuming that they are going to be uh, unassailed by the cares and worries of the world, you're mistaken. They need to know your story. They need to know what God has done in your life. They need to see it in actions. Illuminate it to the best of your ability with grace and love, but talk to them let them know that God loves them and that he will always be there for them. Who knows what happened in Samson's life? You know, I I think his mother told him the story again and again until he was probably sick of it. I mean, they had to explain to him why he couldn't cut his hair, although he probably, probably liked that part, but why he couldn't touch a dead body. Well, he probably didn't like that part anyway, 
but why he couldn't have any, any fruit of the vine at all. No alcohol, no strong drink, no grapes, not even, it says, no seed or skin. It's pretty clear they weren't happy when he wanted them to arrange his marriage to the Philistine. They protested and said, well, certainly you could have found a, a, a woman of our, of our nation. And what did he say to them? Get her for me, because she looks good to me. So don't wait, parents, until your beloved child, now a teenager, demands to do something you don't approve of. Learn to dialogue now. Learn to speak the truth now. Because you know what? In the end, they belong to God anyway, and you're going to have to let them go. All right. That's Samson in a nutshell. You can learn about him, like I said, if you want to read chapters 14, 15, and 16 of Judges. And next week, we'll take a look at another woman who was barren and had uh, opportunity to have a son. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are at work in our lives, that you love us so much that you will not let us go. And that even when we rebel against you, even when we don't listen, your love still encompasses us. I thank you that you've placed us in the body of Christ, that you have given to us the task of communicating your love, your touch, your faith to the world. And that you've not, not given us that task without empowering us through the Holy Spirit to see it through. May we be the kind of church that you want us to be, reaching out to people in love, letting them know how much you care for them. In your name we pray, amen.